Hey, Carl, I can hear the goats. Oh, good. Margaret, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, I'm so excited to welcome Margaret Hathaway and Carl Schatz, the dynamic team behind five books on food and farming, including the memoir, The Year of the Goat, The Guide Living with Goats, and the two volumes of the Portland Maine Chef's Table. This past year, they collaborated on the Maine Bicentennial Cookbook, a collection of favorite recipes from all corners of the state and spanning the state's 200-year history. Margaret's a writer who's worked in book publishing, corporate communications, and as manager of New York's Magnolia Bakery. Carl's a photographer who has worked as editor of Time, Inc. and as director of Aurora Photos. For many years, Carl served on the board of Levy Day School, and Margaret received the Aronson Young Leadership Award from the JCA several years ago in recognition of her incredible volunteer leadership and um, work throughout the community. Since 2005, the couples lived with their daughters on Ten Apple Farm, a homestead in Southern Maine where they raise dairy goats, tend a large garden and small orchard, make cheese, teach workshops, and operate a guest house. Welcome. It's so great to see you both and to see the goats. Very yeah, cool. <laughs> a, lot of, uh, a lot of banging going on back here. So. That's great. It's really dramatic. It's exciting. So yeah. when we first conceived of the idea of these interviews, you guys were among the first people that I really wanted to make sure we had on. Um, your work is so inspiring and it's so exciting. And I think um, a lot of people are get really excited to hear more about what you're up to. Um, I also feel like it's always changing. And I know this year, with COVID, it's been changing in unexpected ways as well. So um, you're known for your goat hikes, which we've really enjoyed at the JCA um, as a staff retreat. And um, you guys have continued to offer them throughout this time. And I wonder if you could talk about what they are, how they work, and also um, how it feels to get people out in the woods and with animals during this difficult period. So when we hike with goats, we take our herd of alpine dairy goats out into the woods. We have 18 acres of woods that have a couple trails on them and we do it year round. We started doing this about 12 years ago, yeah, I think. In when, the winter. Yeah, in the winter, just to get the goats some exercise. And it started just being something we did on the weekends, just go with on snowshoes with friends. And then it kind of snowballed into something that more people were interested in coming out, friends brought friends. And um, now it's sort of turned into a, our primary business here on the farm where we take groups of up to 15 people um, on a hike with our goats and give them an educational and recreational experience, uh, like spending time with animals, learning a little bit about basic goat care. And um, we used to end with a milking lesson, but because of social distancing, we're not able to do that right now. And um, so when, when we reopened after the four month hiatus at the beginning of the pandemic, we had to dramatically re-envision how we would give people that intimacy that you normally would get at the end of a hike. And we're still working on that, but we did get two small Nigerian dwarf goats who, um, people can actually pick up and hold, which, which gives them a little snuggly moment. So yeah, when, especially in the winter time, when we uh, pre COVID doing the hikes, we always started the experiences right in our farmhouse kitchen. So we'd bring, you know, 15 or sometimes 20 people into the kitchen who would all be crammed in there shoulder to shoulder, obviously can't do that uh, anymore. Um, and so just that, you know, and then we would end in the kitchen too. And we end all the hikes uh, by letting people try uh, fresh goat milk and uh, with cookies that Margaret bakes. And um, that's kind of the end of the hike. And that would also be in the kitchen. Um, and so we really had to imagine, okay, how do we 
begin, you know, set the stage for this experience um, without kind of that that coziness and and comfort in in the kitchen and, and ending sure. that way too. Um, and so that's been, you know, I think it's that's been challenging. Well, I think I think hospitality and making people feel welcome and really. Um, I feel as though we are bringing them into our lives is a big part of what we love doing about the experience. And I think what people enjoy about coming here. And so that was a challenge, but we built an outdoor space with some gardens and um, I mean, now they're under a blanket of snow, but there's also a, a little fire pit that we, we built a sort of portable one and kind of have moved things around, shuffled things so that people can, can feel like they're still in our space and and still being warmly welcomed, even if we can't have them in in our home. Well, it's also um, for people who aren't familiar. Are you, did you did you come up with the idea of goat hikes? Is it something? Because I had never heard about it before until you talked about it. And one of the things I know people get nervous about is how does it work to be so near goats that are moving quickly? And and yeah. in fact, the way that they move is it's super safe to be around them, and it's really cool to watch. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that it's, um, I mean, we didn't invent it. Uh, we spent a year prior to our sort of creating our farm life here, we spent a year traveling around the United States, visiting other people's uh, farm lives and goat, uh, goat businesses. And we spent a year of sort of exploration and, and research um, looking into goats and, and goat activities. And one of the things we did during that year was we went goat packing out in Wyoming. Um, and goat packing, is, it's very similar to what we do on the farm, except uh, it's you're camping and you're doing it over a, you know, like a multi-day trip. So you're and, actually out in the, the wilderness with the goats. And the goats are carrying all your stuff on panniers. So you don't have to carry a heavy pack. Yeah. You just walk along, nice stroll. And I think that's what kind of planted the seed for us when we came got to the farm and we had our, our goats are in the winter they're they're in the barn all winter long and so to give them fresh exer fresh air and exercise in the winter time we started taking them for hikes and it sort of just evolved and became this sort of more and more popular thing that we were doing and our, our goats are very domesticated so we bottle feed them from the time they're babies so the goats think of us as their source of food so they'll play with each other um and use their horns on each other you know sort of vying for dominance and and they're always reshuffling who's the top goat, but they don't want to hurt humans. They want to just be along with humans. And, you know, goat hiking is something that we call it goat hiking because it gives it a nice name, but really like every place else on the planet, people just walk with their animals. You know, if you're, if you're anywhere outside of cities in Western Europe and the U S there are people walking with goats and, so it's, it's, uh, goats have evolved with humans over the last 10,000 years to enjoy doing this. So I think everyone's satisfied by it. So, um, I know the, the book project, your most recent work with the Bicentennial Cookbook was a really, was part of a larger effort throughout the state to do lots of Bicentennial activities. And a lot of those had to change. Um, can you talk about your collaborations with MPBN and others to still get the word out about the book and, and get people cooking and thinking about mean um, recipes? I know cooking is really popular right now, so it seems like it actually was <laughs> yeah, pretty timely, but how, how's that been going? Maybe we can say a little bit more about what the project is. So it was a crowdsourced cookbook um, and crowdfunded cookbook inviting people to send their favorite family recipes to 
to celebrate the bicentennial. So it was a, a snapshot of Maine home cooking in all 16 counties that we were putting together for the, for the occasion of the bicentennial, though um, not, not at the exclusion of recent immigrants or Wabanaki people who were here first. We're, we're trying to embrace home cooking all over the state in, in all of its constellations. Yeah, the timing for a cookbook that celebrated uh, home cooking was, and beans was, and beans was, a, was a, <laughs> That's right. So we started working on this probably October of 2019. Yeah, and Maine Public was one of our first sponsors. They were a media sponsor, so we connected with them to help get the word out about you know, hey, if you have a great recipe, please send it to these folks. And so we had. Um, we went out through as many media channels as we could. And we really had the book sort of put together by March and then, you know, yeah. things, everything changed. But it is, a, I mean, the book is a, uh, it's, it's a celebration of Maine home cooking, but it's also a celebration of the tradition of community cookbooks. Um, and I think this is something that we're, you know, everyone's familiar of in some way that we've all seen these, you know, these, uh, cookbooks that came, you know, came from churches or Grange halls or, uh, you know, uh, some of the things that define a community cookbook. Mm -hmm. um, and we worked with a friend of ours, Don Lindgren from Rabelais Books um, in Biddeford, and he's really the expert about community cookbooks. He's been collecting them um, for years and has the largest collection of Maine community cookbooks. Um, and uh, so working with him and sort of fleshing out the idea of what is a community cookbook and the charitable mm -hmm. element is a big part of it. And we knew that we wanted a portion of the proceeds for, from the bicentennial community cookbook to go to um, fight hunger in Maine. And so that's, that's the sort of charitable piece of, of that project. And, uh, and so far we've been able to uh, raise over $14,000 um, for uh, charities in Maine that are, are working um, to, to end hunger by 2030 or, or just working to try to feed people through the pandemic. It's such a beautiful way to make the project really full circle too. I, I think it's really inspiring. Um, you've been doing cook-alongs or in, inviting people to cook along with one another. Can you talk about how that works? Uh, well, uh, there've been a bunch of them. Some of them, some of them not at all at our, um, you know, our instigation or, yeah, the, or that we had okay. anything to do the, with. The book kind of took on a life outside of us. In some of these cases, there were some libraries and churches doing cook-alongs that we heard about after the fact, which was exciting. Oh, that's cool. And, yeah, it was uh, and, um, and there's a, a, a woman who's, um, a who, Methodist minister who, somewhere Midcoast, I think. Yeah, who cooked yeah. her way through, who cooked her way through the entire book, uh, cooking oh. every recipe and blogging about it as she went. Even um, some of these like historic recipes, like spruce beer and, you know, yeah. things that it took a lot of effort on her part to track down. That's impressive. Yeah. One of our most recent, uh, distributions from the book was, to a um, a place uh, a game uh, called Game Loft in yeah. mid in the Mid Coast region. I think they're in Bath. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, a Game Loft, and they've been providing uh, school lunches, free free uh, lunches for kids um, throughout the pandemic. And I think they were doing something like that before, but it's 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 grown substantially during the pandemic. Um, and so we sent them uh, uh, a donation. And um, got just an amazing email back from um, from the co-director there, 
um, about how uh, she's been teaching Maine foodways to kids for the past 10 years. And now that she, and now she's using the bicentennial uh, community cookbook as part of her curriculum in teaching main foodways to kids. So that was really like, it just, it, it, it really we, feels we like. We had no idea that she was doing that. That makes so much sense. That's incredible. Um, but Margaret, your, your cooking classes have been really popular at the J for a long time and um, both in person and also now virtual. But I love recently you've started to, to do a couple classes that juxtapose different types of foods together. So you, you did one on sambusas and knishes, and there's one coming up February 21st on Italian American mac and cheese and kugel. Yeah. Can you talk about how, how you were thinking about juxtaposing these, these recipes, what, what your thought process is behind generating the course? Well, I think, so doing these through the J, I wanted to make sure that we were using, like looking at what Jews have been cooking historically in Maine. And so we had a few recipes. We had the kugel, we had the knishes, um, but looking at the foods that um, Jews were mostly immigrants to Maine and looking at the foods that, that the Jewish community was making and similar styles of foods that other immigrant communities were making. I just thought it was really neat to see like, like meat in a, some kind of dumpling is almost a universal food stuff. And the, the sambusas weren't the only one, one that we could have juxtaposed them with. There was also an empanada from Colombia that we could have put in, but I just thought it was really interesting to see how there are different cultural takes on the, the foods that are both available and sometimes the foods that are cheap and help, you know, meat go a long way or um, starches that will help feed your whole family. So, so that was sort of my, my thought process there. And then what was interesting was the Kugel recipe came from the first uh, Jewish community cookbook in Maine that was, I think, 1951. Yeah, the Waterville water Hadassah put it together. And we had this recipe from exactly the same time from the 50s from an Italian American family. Um, and I thought, wow, these, these are very different flavors. But when you look at the basic ingredients, it's dairy, it's starch, and it feeds a crowd. And so I thought that would be a, a fun one to do. So um, yeah, it's really, I, I find those connections in food um, just another example of how food builds community. So, mm. um, well, it's almost a conversation. Between, I mean, right. I love, I love the concept so much. Exactly. Um, how is it to teach on Zoom for you, Margaret? What can participants expect in terms of that <laughs> framework? Well, well, so I've only done the one because okay. I, I am really not adept at Zoom, and I realized that in you know the endless parent nights that we have for our three children it actually our daughter Sadie who's nine came in and so if people come to the the zoom class they'll they should expect to see children helping excellent and, um, sometimes not helping and sometimes not helping. <laughs> and, <laughs> um yeah so it was a totally different experience and I'm I'm very tactile when I teach like usually with something like the sambusas and the knishes, we made two doughs. And so in a normal classroom, I would go around and feel everyone's doughs and not being able to do that. I was really hopeful that people could, you know, my powers of description were good enough that they could, they could figure out what they were supposed to do. And uh, so it was, it was fun. It was like a cooking class, except participatory 
um, or not a cooking class, a cooking show, except participatory. And I don't know, I think it was really fun ultimately, but the first five minutes I was like, I don't know how to do this. Well, I've, I've heard rave reviews, Margaret, and we there's some really cool pictures that people posted on, on Facebook of the end result. So I think, you know, I think it did, it did work out for lots of people. Um, yeah, and I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, I think one of the neatest things about it was um, you know, when you're, when you're in a, a, doing a cooking class, you know, and you're all together in the room and, you know, people are finishing and then there's this finished product, but it kind of feels like everyone went through more or less the same controlled process to get that finished product. But here it was like, everyone was in their own kitchen. They were cooking with their own stuff, their own, you know, and then at the end, all of a sudden people are like showing their finished knishes like yeah. up to the screen. And it's like, wow, it worked. It's like magic. <laughs> And it was, yeah. really, like, it was really exciting and neat to see, like people feel like people were sharing uh, the food that they made from their in from their own kitchens in their own kitchens, and that was that, there was something really yeah. special about that. Well, and I think it does yeah. give people a different sense of ownership. I think sometimes if you take a cooking class, and I know when before I started teaching them, I've taken cooking classes, and you feel like oh, I can do this in these people's space because yes. they arranged everything for me. But when you're at home and you're you're doing it in your own kitchen and then you have success, that actually I think makes people feel like, oh, maybe I'll make knishes again. Yeah, a little bit more. Right. Yeah, a little more confidence. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, I think we're all trying to think about you know ways that that yeah that there are benefits too to doing things this way, the accessibility and sort of the personalization, being able to pick it up and do it while you're in your kitchen. Um, but I hadn't thought about the issue of really that it makes it feel maybe more empowering for you to just go for it next time. That makes a lot of sense. And I think accessibility, like my yeah. my uh, my aunt in uh, New that York, was, I was going to say that thing. was able to uh, yeah. zoom in and be part of Margaret cooking her grandmother's knish recipe. And oh, I think that's really and well, and it was your aunt wow. Susan who um, who gave us the cookbook. That's it right. was her copy of the cookbook that we were mm -hmm. using. So that we used for the main bicentennial community cookbook. Yeah. So, um, so that was, so that nice was really neat. That, yeah. That she could. Yeah. So I, in, in such a broad sense, your dedication as a couple and as individuals to giving back to the community is really, it's remarkable in our community. And it's something that I know um, so many people have just been, you've lit a fire for lots of folks um, in many different ways. And I wondered how you, think about your Jewish commitments as a family and also in the work that you do. Um, you know, how, how does that play into how you make decisions about, um, even as you've shared, you know, thinking through multiple levels of different projects that involve some kind of a, a way to give back or a way to enhance community. It feels like that's so much at the core of the work that you do. Uh, I, I think it is. I mean, I, I have to say like, for me, it's, it's, part of, I mean, I think it was just part of my upbringing, you know, it really mm -hmm. comes from my parents who were just super committed to the Jewish community in Augusta and uh, always involved in some way, whether it was, you know, leading services as a layman when we didn't have a rabbi or, you know, serving as temple president or, you know, whatever um, needed to be done to, to coming into my classes when I was a kid and sharing Jewish holidays with with the all my classmates none of whom were Jewish um, but but being 
community minded, being involved in the community. And, and they got it also from their parents too, who were involved when they were growing up in Portland, in the Portland Jewish community. And so um, it's really, uh, it's been handed down, you know, I think through the generations of, uh, of my family that, you know, how important community is and, and how important it is um, to, to be involved in the community and to be engaged and to, to volunteer. If you have money, donate money. If you don't have money, donate time, uh, you know, and, um, and if you can do both all, all the better, but, um, but that's really been, I think, you know, the, I just kind of grew up with that being part of my life. And, and so it was really important to me that we continue that, uh, that tradition and, and instill that in our kids. And, you know, Judaism is a religion of action and it, it feels to me not having that tradition. I mean, my parents were involved in the community, but not as Jews. Um, it, it feels like if I'm going to embrace this community and this faith, then part of that is living living the obligation to to give back to the community to do mitzvot so yeah i think i think i think the fact that we are jews informs all of all of our work and you know a lot of our work feels like in on some level it's mission driven even if it's just welcoming people into into our home to hike with the goats (laughs) And you're also part of a broader movement of Jewish farming across the country. I know there are different ways that you've engaged with that. Do you, do you think about that too? Or are you, do you, how how are you working with others? Well, you know, early on when the organization was really early, we became involved with Hazon and that I think really helped us uh, see that we were part of this sort of a bigger movement, bigger movement of like eco Jews. And, and that, that was really an interesting connection because I think at least for me, when I married into a Jewish family, no one in Carl's family had been a farmer for a very long time. Um, Forever. Well, at some point, (laughs) at some point, maybe. (laughs) But um, it, it was really exciting to see that there were people who were interested in all of the same things that we're interested in. And, and now the Jewish farmer network exists. And, you know, we went to that conference last year, right before the pandemic started, which was really, really really thrilling. And it was really thrilling to see that there are a lot of people who are, you know, maybe 10 years younger than we are at a, at a different place in their life. Um, who still have the same really excited energy about connecting Judaism and farming and caring for the world and seeing how sustainability is important in every, everything, not, not just in, you know, one area of your life, but how having a a sustainable life means lots of different things. So. And I think it also was, uh, it, it helped us understand, um, and and show our kids that there are many different ways that you can be Jewish and mm-hmm. there are many different things you can both take from Judaism and give back to Judaism and it doesn't necessarily just mean you know going to synagogue or keeping kosher or you know doing things that necessarily you know were the kinds of things to our parents and grandparents those were the identifiable things about being Jewish um, but that being Jewish 
today can mean, you know, raising pigs that you're, you know, that you're then for the food pantry, for the food pantry you know, that that's, um, you know, it's something certainly, you know, our grandparents would recognize as a way to feel like you're participating in Judaism being connected in other ways through the other th things that we can do and, and feel like we're part of a, a, a different kind of, um, you know, sort of Jewish example. And I think it's really helpful to the community and probably nationally to lots of people who look to you for, for um, inspiration and as an example. I think um, it, yeah, seeing the different ways that people express their Jewishness and their Jewish life and how that changes over time, the more variety that there is, I think the more space we create for people to say, oh yeah, I see a piece of myself or I've learned something new that I, I never connected. Um, before. So I, I think it's incredibly meaningful for all of us in Portland and again, you know, throughout the state and, and beyond. Um, I know as we angle towards spring, we there's a lot to do to get the farm ready. And I'm sure you guys are, are starting to, to ramp up. Um, what are you turning to for comfort and joy and, um, and energy, I guess, during this, this time? Well, we've got baby chicks arriving in like yeah. two weeks, which is, we're, yeah. We're anticipating, last year I had this frenzy where I bought like 550 bulbs and planted planted them all. Yeah. I, I mean, they're probably 25 in the yeah. cellar still. Almost. That's impressive, Margaret, that's a lot. Well, I, I was, I had a team, you know, yeah. the kids <laughs> the kids were bribed into helping. Yeah, so we're excited about, yeah, what we, what we planted in the fall uh, coming. Our oldest, Charlotte, did the Gray Farmer's Market. Um, she had done, we had done a little farm stand with her in, in the year before, and she decided she wanted to do more, and, and Gray started a farmer's market, she did that, and now she's really excited about doing that again and, and thinking about how we can do more around that. And we, we do, you know, we do the goat hikes year-round, and normally we also do workshops in our home, like cooking and uh, jam making and cheese. And all of that had to pause last year. So one of the things that we're really thinking about is like, can we safely offer those in a different format? Do we want to do them over Zoom? Do we want to just continue to pause from that and kind of go in different directions until we can do things the way we were before? I mean, I think like everyone, we're just waiting for the vaccine to be more widely available and to sure. see to see what the coming six months are gonna look like. I think um, that there's so much unknown and and we're so hopeful, you know. <laughs> well, I think, I think navigating that balance of anxiety and hope is shared not just with farmers this time of year at this point. I think we're all in the same boat. And, um, and I love the idea of looking forward to your bulbs. Um, people can follow you on Instagram at you're at 10 Apple Farm and, and on your website too. So hopefully there'll be pictures of flowers. And oh, there definitely will be pictures of flowers when yeah. they come up. So. Awesome. Well, we can look forward to that for sure. Um, thank you both so much. It's really fun to talk with you. And hopefully this is the first of more conversations to come. Sounds good. Thanks, Molly. Right. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye. J Talks is a project of the Jewish Community Alliance of Southern Maine and is produced by Sarah Halley Richardson. If you are interested in being featured, learning more about the program, or providing support, please feel free to contact us or visit our website at www.mainjewish.org. 